Chapter Sixteen of the Professor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Geeson. The Professor by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter Sixteen. In the course of another fortnight. I had seen sufficient of Frances Evans Henri to enable me to form a more definite opinion of her character. I found her possessed in a somewhat remarkable degree of at least two good points, viz. perseverance and a sense of duty. I found she was really capable of applying to study, of contending with difficulties. At first I offered her the same help which I had always found it necessary to confer on the others. I began with unloosing for her each knotty point, but I soon discovered that such help was regarded by my new pupil as degrading. She recoiled from it with a certain proud impatience. Hereupon I appointed her long lessons, and left her to solve alone any perplexities they might present. She set to the task with serious ardour, and having quickly accomplished one labour, eagerly demanded more so much for her perseverance. As to her sense of duty, it evinced itself thus. She liked to learn, but hated to teach. Her progress as a pupil depended upon herself, and I saw that on herself she could calculate with certainty. Her success as a teacher rested partly, perhaps chiefly, upon the will of others. It cost her a most painful effort to enter into conflict with this foreign will, to endeavour to bend it into subjection to her own, for in what regarded people in general the action of her will was impeded by many scruples. It was as unembarrassed as strong where her own affairs were concerned, and to it she could at any time subject her inclination, if that inclination went counter to her convictions of right. Yet when called upon to wrestle with the propensities, the habits, the faults of others, of children especially who are deaf to reason, and for the most part insensate to persuasion, her will sometimes almost refused to act. Then came in the sense of duty, and forced the reluctant will into operation. A wasteful expense of energy and labour was frequently the consequence. Frances toiled for and with her pupils like a drudge, but it was long ere her conscientious exertions were rewarded by anything like docility on their part, because they saw that they had power over her, inasmuch as by resisting her painful attempts to convince, persuade, control, by forcing her to the employment of coercive measures, they could inflict upon her exquisite suffering. Human beings, human children especially, seldom deny themselves the pleasure of exercising a power which they are conscious of possessing, even though that power consist only in a capacity to make others wretched. A pupil whose sensations are duller than those of his instructor, while his nerves are tougher and his bodily strength perhaps greater, has an immense advantage over that instructor, and he will generally use it relentlessly because the very young, very healthy, very thoughtless, know neither how to sympathise nor how to spare. Frances, I fear, suffered much. A continual weight seemed to oppress her spirits. 
I have said she did not live in the house, and whether in her own abode, wherever that might be, she wore the same preoccupied, unsmiling, sorrowfully resolved air that always shaded her features under the roof of Mademoiselle Reuter, I could not tell. One day I gave, as a devoir, the trite little anecdote of Alfred tending cakes in the herdsman's hut, to be related with amplifications. A singular affair most of the pupils made of it. Brevity was what they had chiefly studied. The majority of the narratives were perfectly unintelligible. Those of Sylvie and Léonie Ledru alone pretended to anything like sense and connection. Eulalie, indeed, had hit upon a clever expedient for at once ensuring accuracy and saving trouble. She had obtained access somehow to an abridged history of England, and had copied the anecdote out fair. I wrote on the margin of her production, stupid and deceitful, and then tore it down the middle. Last in the pile of single-leaved devoirs, I found one of several sheets, neatly written out and stitched together. I knew the hand, and scarcely needed the evidence of the signature, Francis Evans Henri to confirm my conjecture as to the writer's identity. Night was my usual time for correcting devoir, and my own room the usual scene of such task, task most onerous hitherto, and it seemed strange to me to feel rising within me an incipient sense of interest, as I snuffed out the candle and addressed myself to the perusal of the poor teacher's manuscript. Now, thought I, I shall see a glimpse of what she really is. I shall get an idea of the nature and extent of her powers. Not that she can be expected to express herself well in a foreign tongue, but still, if she has any mind, here will be a reflection of it. The narrative commenced by a description of a Saxon peasant's hut, situated within the confines of a great leafless winter forest. It represented an evening in December. Flakes of snow were falling, and the herdsman foretold a heavy storm. He summoned his wife to aid him in collecting their flock, roaming far away on the pastoral banks of the Thone. He warns her that it will be late ere they return. The good woman is reluctant to quit her occupation of baking cakes for the evening meal. But acknowledging the primary importance of securing the herds and flocks, she puts on her sheepskin mantle and addressing a stranger who rests half reclined on a bed of rushes near the hearth, bids him mind the bread till her return. "'Take care, young man,' she continues, "'that you fasten the door well after us, and above all open to none in our absence. Whatever sound you hear, stir not and look not out. The night will soon fall. This forest is most wild and lonely.' Strange noises are often heard therein after sunset. Wolves haunt these glades, and Danish warriors infest the country. Worse things are talked of. You might chance to hear, as it were, a child cry, and on opening the door to afford it succour, a great black bull or a shadowy goblin dog might rush over the threshold. Or more awful still, if something flapped, as with wings, against the lattice, and then a raven or a white dove flew in and settled on the hearth. Such a visitor would be a sure sign of misfortune to the house. Therefore heed my advice and lift the latchet for nothing. Her husband calls her away, both depart. 
The stranger, left alone, listens a while to the muffled snow-wind, the remote swollen sound of the river, and then he speaks. It is Christmas Eve, says he. I mark the date. Here I sit alone on a rude couch of rushes, sheltered by the thatch of a herdsman's hut. I, whose inheritance was a kingdom, owe my night's harbourage to a poor serf. My throne is usurped, my crown presses the brow of an invader. I have no friends, my troops wander broken in the hills of Wales. Reckless robbers spoil my country, my subjects lie prostrate, their breasts crushed by the heel of the brutal Dane. Fate, thou hast done thy worst, and now thou standest before me, resting thy hand on thy blunted blade. I... I see thine eye confront mine, and demand why I still live, why I still hope. Pagan demon, I credit not thine omnipotence, and so cannot succumb to thy power. My God, whose son, as on this night, took on him the form of a man, and for man vouchsafed to suffer and bleed, controls thy hand, and without his behest thou canst not strike a stroke. My God is sinless, eternal, all-wise. In him is my trust. And though stripped and crushed by thee, though naked, desolate, void of resource, I do not despair, I cannot despair. Where the lance of Guthrum, now wet with my blood, I should not despair. I watch, I toil, I hope, I pray. Jehovah in his own time will aid. I need not continue the quotation. The whole devoir was in the same strain. There were errors of orthography. There were foreign idioms. There were some faults of construction. There were verbs irregular transformed into verbs regular. It was mostly made up, as the above example shows, of short and somewhat rude sentences, and the style stood in great need of polish and sustained dignity. Yet, such as it was, I had hitherto seen nothing like it in the course of my professorial experience. The girl's mind had conceived a picture of the hut, of the two peasants, of the crownless king. She had imagined the wintry forest. She had recalled the old Saxon ghost legends. She had appreciated Alfred's courage under calamity. She had remembered his Christian education— and had shown him with the rooted confidence of those primitive days, relying on the scriptural Jehovah for aid against the mythological destiny. This she had done without a hint from me. I had given the subject, but not said a word about the manner of treating it. "'I will find or make an opportunity of speaking to her,' I said to myself as I rolled the devoir up. I will learn what she has of English in her besides the name of Frances Evans. She is no novice in the language, that is evident. Yet she told me she had neither been in England, nor taken lessons in English, nor lived in English families. In the course of my next lesson, I made a report of the other devoir, dealing out praise and blame in very small retail parcels, according to my custom, for there was no use in blaming severely and high encomiums were rarely merited. I said nothing of Mademoiselle Henri's exercise, and spectacles on nose I endeavoured to decipher in her countenance her sentiments at the omission. 
I wanted to find out whether in her existed a consciousness of her own talents. If she thinks she did a clever thing in composing that devoir, she will now look mortified, thought I. Grave as usual, almost sombre was her face. As usual, her eyes were fastened on the cahier open before her. There was something, I thought, of expectation in her attitude, as I concluded a brief review of the last devoir, and when, casting it from me and rubbing my hands, I bade them take their grammars, some slight change did pass over her air and mien, as though she now relinquished a faint prospect of pleasant excitement. She had been waiting for something to be discussed in which she had a degree of interest. The discussion was not to come on. So expectation sank back, shrunk and sad. But attention, promptly filling up the void, repaired in a moment the transient collapse of feature. Still I felt, rather than saw, during the whole course of the lesson, that a hope had been wrenched from her, and that if she did not show distress, it was because she would not. At four o'clock, when the bell rang and the room was in immediate tumult, Instead of taking my hat and starting from the estrade, I sat still for a moment. I looked at Frances. She was putting her books into her cabas. Having fastened the button, she raised her head. Encountering my eye, she made a quiet, respectful obeisance, as bidding good afternoon, and was turning to depart. "'Come here,' said I, lifting my finger at the same time. She hesitated. She could not hear the words amidst the uproar now pervading both schoolrooms. I repeated the sign. She approached. Again she paused within half a yard of the estrade, and looked shy, and still doubtful whether she had mistaken my meaning. "'Step up,' I said, speaking with decision. It is the only way of dealing with diffident, easily embarrassed characters— and with some slight manual aid I presently got her placed just where I wanted her to be, that is, between my desk and the window, where she was screened from the rush of the second division, and where no one could sneak behind her to listen. "'Take a seat,' I said, placing a tabouret, and I made her sit down. I knew what I was doing would be considered a very strange thing, and what was more, I did not care. Francis knew it also.' and I fear, by an appearance of agitation and trembling, that she cared much. I drew from my pocket the rolled-up devoir. "'This is yours, I suppose,' said I, addressing her in English, for I now felt sure she could speak English. "'Yes,' she answered distinctly, and as I unrolled it and laid it out flat on the desk before her with my hand upon it, and a pencil in that hand, I saw her moved and, as it were, kindled, her depression beamed as a cloud might behind which the sun is burning. "'This devoir has numerous faults,' said I. "'It will take you some years of careful study before you are in a condition to write English with absolute correctness. Attend. I will point out some principal defects.' And I went through it carefully, noting every error and demonstrating why they were errors and how the words or phrases ought to have been written. In the course of this sobering process she became calm. I now went on. As to the substance of your devoir, Mademoiselle Henri, it has surprised me. I perused it with pleasure, 
because I saw in it some proofs of taste and fancy. Taste and fancy are not the highest gifts of the human mind, but such as they are you possess them, not probably in a paramount degree, but in a degree beyond what the majority can boast. You may then take courage, cultivate the faculties that God and nature have bestowed on you, and do not fear in any crisis of suffering, under any pressure of injustice, to derive free and full consolation from the consciousness of their strength and rarity. Strength and rarity, I repeated to myself. Aye, the words are probably true, for on looking up I saw the sun had dissevered its screening cloud. Her countenance was transfigured. A smile shone in her eyes, a smile almost triumphant. It seemed to say, I am glad that you have been forced to discover so much of my nature. You need not so carefully moderate your language. Do you think I am myself a stranger to myself? What you tell me in terms so qualified, I have known fully from a child. She did say this as plainly as a frank and flashing glance could, but in a moment the glow of her complexion, the radiance of her aspect, had subsided. If strongly conscious of her talents, she was equally conscious of her harassing defects, and the remembrance of these, obliterated for a single second, now reviving with sudden force, at once subdued the two vivid characters in which her sense of her powers had been expressed. So quick was the revulsion of feeling, I had not time to check her triumph by reproof. Ere I could contract my brows to a frown, she had become serious and almost mournful-looking. "'Thank you, sir,' said she, rising. There was gratitude both in her voice and in the look with which she accompanied it. It was time indeed for our conference to terminate, for when I glanced around, behold, all the boarders, the day scholars had departed, were congregated within a yard or two of my desk, and stood staring with eyes and mouths wide open. The three maîtresses formed a whispering knot in one corner, and close at my elbow was the directress, sitting on a low chair, calmly clipping the tassels of her finished purse. End of chapter 16 Recording by Martin Geeson in Hazelmere, Surrey